Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we want to pray for this moment right now that as the word of God is preached, we pray for your spirit to accompany the words of Scripture, that it might uh, minister, the, the, the truth of, of Scripture might minister to our hearts, that if it needs to pierce us and convict us, Holy Spirit, do that work in us and conform our hearts, conform our minds uh, more closely to your truth found in your word. Lord, we just pray uh, for you to be glorified and for us as a church to be built up by the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, recently I preached an introductory message for our sermon series through the book of First Thessalonians. And in that sermon, I described towards the end, uh, I described the Thessalonian church as a political church. And the point I was trying to make there was that one of the reasons why it was flourishing, one of the reasons why it was so healthy was because it preached a political message that shook the world, that turned it upside down. People noticed, and people were drawn to the church. Their faith couldn't be tucked away neatly in the privacy of, of their homes or their hearts. No, their gospel preaching was political speech with political implications because it centered on a coming king who demands our allegiance over all the rulers and ruling ideologies of our day. And I, I tried in that message to distinguish this kind of political church from a partisan church. And we said there that a partisan church is the kind of church that will try to campaign for, a, for particular politicians or particular platforms or, or parties. They, they, they've too closely aligned themselves uh, and align the mission of the church, maybe even the gospel itself, with either the Republican or the Democratic Party. That's a partisan church, and that's not what we mean by a political church. So, for, for example, a political church is going to be faithful and courageous to preach the biblical warnings against the love of money and the biblical duty that we have as Christians to serve the poor. But a political church recognizes that we can only bind the consciences of our people to the limits of God's revealed word. And so we can say with confidence, we can say with authority that it is our Christian duty to serve the poor. And, and that's because it's in the scriptures. But we would refrain as a church from promoting particular policies like raising the minimum wage or providing uh, universal pre-K. Equally faithful Christians can disagree on issues of public policy while agreeing together that we have a duty as Christians to serve the poor. You see, that's how a church remains political and maintains a public voice on public issues that do affect society, but without growing partisan, without losing sight of our mission as the church. Now, granted, it's all easier said than done, but of course, that is our goal. Now, this is important for, for me to explain and to clarify this morning because we're going to speak today on a controversial public issue. Today, across the nation, churches are observing Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It falls typically on the third Sunday of January, timed with the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. 
As many of you are well aware, 48 years ago, a Supreme Court decision made abortion a legal right in all 50 states. Now, I know that the normal practice in our church is to simply preach through books of the Bible, which is what we're doing in our First Thessalonians series. But our church also does have a tradition of preaching a sanctity of life message during this time of year. I've preached a few uh, in the past. It's been a few years now since I've preached one of these messages, but I believe it's still an important practice for us to keep. Now, I do want to make clear, though, that we don't believe that this is the only public issue worthy for us to address as a church. I think Christians should speak out against racial injustices and against economic disparities in society. We could very well discuss and to address from the pulpit the refugee crisis going on at the border or the problem of human trafficking, sex trafficking in our city, or mass incarceration, or, or man-made climate change. But guess what? Christians aren't the only ones speaking to these social issues and advocating for positive change. There are plenty of people talking about these things, including non-Christian and non-religious groups. But there is one particular issue, which I would argue is the most urgent social injustice of our day that you really only hear Christians talking about. And that's the issue of abortion. And that's why I still think it's worthy for us to single out this issue and to have a sanctity of life message. Now, the way we're going to approach this is we're going to be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I know that's a parable that most people are familiar with, but I think most people don't realize what it's really all about. It's not just about being a good neighbor. It's not just about baking cookies for your neighbors or, or, or raking their lawn. No, this is a parable about what it means to be human. It's about the mercy of God to rescue you in your despair that moves you to rescue others in similar despair. It's about compassion and mercy for the helpless and the weak in our lives. It's, it's even about confronting our sinful biases related to the issue of abortion. Did you realize, did you realize the magnitude of this parable? Now, I think it's going to become all the more apparent when you consider the larger context. This parable takes place in a section of Luke's gospel where he's describing what a follower of Jesus looks like. Uh, at the end of chapter 9, Jesus warns about the cost of discipleship. And then into chapter 10, we see that following Jesus calls for gospel preaching. Disciples of Christ are entrusted with a message. They're entrusted with political speech about the kingdom of, of God and its king. And then if you look at the end of chapter 10 in our text today, we see that following Jesus involves not just preaching about the king and his kingdom, but living out those implications. If we truly believe that we are citizens of an in-breaking kingdom under the authority of a king who loves the least of these, then what do we do when we are faced with neighbors who are being marginalized and oppressed? What does the law of God say? What does the king command for us to do? Well, church, I'm going to argue 
that our king wants us to care about abortion and to respond to this moral evil with practical acts of love and service. That is what you can expect to hear from a political church. Now, since we're not a partisan church, what you won't hear me say this morning is that that means every single Christian must vote for this candidate or support that political party. That's not what we're talking about. But what we will talk about, what we will argue for, is that every Christian should be against abortion and for the unborn child in the womb. And we'll try to make this case by means of this parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, in today's text, we'll see Jesus use this parable to do three things. First, he confronts any effort to justify our biases. Second, he undercuts any attempt to limit our duty to love. And third, he demonstrates what enables true neighborly love. So we begin by considering how Jesus uses this parable to confront any effort that we make to justify our own biases. The way we treat others may be justified in our own eyes. Maybe we've somehow cleared our consciences with all sorts of rationales. But when Jesus confronts us, he strips away all of those excuses. He exposes the fact that we do not love as we ought to love. Now, the immediate context of the parable involves a conversation between two experts in Jewish law. Uh, verse 25 says that Jesus was approached by a lawyer, which was more like a, a teacher of the law, like a biblical scholar. And he poses a question to Jesus, which seems innocent enough, but we're told by Luke that his intentions were actually dubious. He was putting Jesus to the test. He was trying to trap him in his words. So the lawyer asks, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But instead of answering directly, Jesus turns the question around with another question. And he says to the expert, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man responds with a fairly common way of summarizing the law. He says to Jesus in verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you're right. All the moral demands of the law can be summed up by these two great commandments. First, love God with everything you've got. Love him wholly. Secondly, love others equally as yourself, just as you would want them to love you. Now listen to verse 28. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Essentially, Jesus is saying, Yes, if you can love like this, then you will inherit eternal life. Why? Well, it's not because God gives eternal life as a reward for your effort to do the law. No, it's, it's because what that kind of love in you reveals about you. If you truly love God wholly and you love others equally, then you're essentially doing the law and proving to be a child of God worthy of inheriting eternal life. So if you can truly love like that, then yes, you will live. But here's the rub. No one actually loves like that. No one is capable of loving God wholly. 
Sin has corrupted everyone's heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is why we also don't love others equally as ourselves. No, we are far too biased to treat other people's in that way. So do you see what Jesus is trying to get at? He's hoping that this lawyer is honest enough with himself to admit that he really doesn't love like that. What should have happened is that this lawyer should, should be reminded of the high standards of God's word and to fall on his face and to proclaim, Lord, have mercy. I thought I loved God. I thought I loved others, but now I see how, how loveless and, and biased I really am. And then Jesus would, ha, would have shown mercy and, and forgiven his sins. And this, this man would, would be filled with mercy and love that overflows into concrete acts of love and mercy towards others. That's what should have happened. But he wasn't there yet. This lawyer thinks that he sufficiently kept the first command to love God wholly, probably because he equates that to keeping um, the, a set of rules about ceremonial cleanliness and, and dietary laws and Sabbath keeping and the rest. But it does look like he has some anxiety over the second commandment. Apparently, he, he, he recognizes that he, he does harbor some biases so he, he tries to justify his lack of love for certain people by asking Jesus to more carefully define that term neighbor. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So this is a clear attempt at self-justification. This man is trying to make himself just. He knows that he hasn't loved everybody equally as himself. He knows he has biases. And so his instinct is to look for some nuanced definition of neighbor that will make him feel that he is still in the right. He's thinking, I know the law can't mean that I have to love literally everyone, right? I mean, that, it's got to be more nuanced than that. There must be some limits here. But that's where he is fundamentally mistaken. He has in his mind a category of non-neighbor, a set of people for whom the second great commandment does not apply. But he is categorically wrong. And Jesus sets out to prove it by means of this parable. Now, before we go into the parable, Let's connect what's happening so far with the issue of abortion. Just as the lawyer was trying to carve out a category of non-neighbor to whom the law, the command to love need not apply, in the same way, many in our culture have done that very thing to others on the basis of developmental size. Babies of a young gestational age and still in the womb are being treated as non-neighbors. They're not defended and protected by moral right or, or legal duty. The only way we can get to this place, the only way we can justify the horrors of abortion is to write off the inhabitant of the womb as a non-neighbor someone to whom the command to love need not apply. So do you see 
Friends, do you see how you can justify all kinds of biases and justify any effort to dismiss an entire class of people if you believe that a category of non-neighbor exists and if you've somehow rationalized that those people fall into it. That's how you end up with racism, classism, nationalism, or any other kind of thinking that excludes people and oppresses others. And that's really the only way that you can justify abortion. If you have convinced yourself somehow that the baby in the womb is a non-neighbor, a non-person, just a clump of cells. But Jesus won't stand for that. He knows what we're trying to do. He knows that we're trying to avoid our biblical duty to love by placing limits. Limits that that excuse our negligence. Limits that enable us to simply go on our way inconvenienced by the needs of others. And this leads to the second thing that we see Jesus doing with this parable. He undercuts any attempt to limit our duty to love. And he does this by telling a story. A story about a Jewish man traveling down the road, the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Now the Jericho road was notorious for being dangerous. It was a 17-mile stretch of winding desert road surrounded by pockets of caves where, where robbers could easily hide. And this man falls prey to a band of robbers. And we're told that he's stripped naked and he's beaten within an inch of his life. He is left to die on the side of the Jericho Road. Now, along comes a priest who responds to this dying man with inaction. No explanation is given to us, but he was likely scared. And there's there's a good chance the robbers were still around. And so he didn't want to, to, to take the risk. And some have suggested perhaps he feared defilement. He, he is a priest, after all. And, and, and if a priest touches a dead body, then he would have to go through this whole entire process of purification, which would have inconvenienced him and his busy schedule. And so he passes on by. Next comes after him a Levite. And he's basically like an assistant priest. And he responds in kind And he passes on by the other side, likely for similar reasons as the priest. The point is, is that they look down at this man with bias. He didn't deserve their love, and he probably deserved that beating. And so by viewing him as a non-neighbor, the priest and the Levite were justified in their attitude. They had confirmed their bias. And that's how they managed to excuse their negligence and to go on their way inconvenienced by the dying need of another. Now, at this point, at this point, many of Jesus' hearers would have probably been nodding in agreement because in those days it was popular to poke fun at the clerical class. After the priest and the Levite, they probably thought that the next character to come by would be the average layman an ordinary Jewish man who's going to come and save the day. He's going to be the hero. But what Jesus says next in verse 33 shocks everyone. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had 
compassion. What Jesus is doing is he is undercutting any attempt to limit our duty to love others as ourselves. Sometimes we try to limit the category of neighbor to those of the same social class or those of the same ethnicity or religion. In Jesus' day, the typical Jew, they would have drawn limits when it came to a Samaritan. Samaritans, in the mind of a Jew, would have been classified as non-neighbors. You, you have to understand this, this deep-seated animosity between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans were a descendants. They were descendants of Israelites who had intermarried with foreigners in the past. And so to a Jew, a Samaritan is a half-breed. And, and what's worse is that they were heretics. They, they rejected most of the Old Testament, and they rejected temple worship. And so a Samaritan is the last person that the crowd would have expected to be the hero of the story. These two men were natural enemies. They were taught from very young to hate each other. And yet Jesus deliberately chose to use a Samaritan. The one character who, in a normal situation, would have left that Jew to die on the side of the road, assuming he just got what he deserved. And yet the Samaritan is actually the only one who stops, who puts his own life at risk in order to help the dying man. This is category shattering for both the lawyer and for us. Like the lawyer, we are biased to limit our love to those to whom we know personally, or at least those with whom we share some kind of commonality or affinity. And so if we uh, attended, uh, attend the same school, or if we work in the same industry, well then, because of that commonality, we might be more inclined to help each other because we feel some sort of connection with one another, and of course, if we share the same ethnicity, if we share the same background and culture, the same heart language, well then, especially if we share the same faith, well then we find it so much easier to love one another. But by using a Samaritan, Jesus undercuts all of those human tendencies. Jews and Samaritans, shared nothing with each other but animosity. But Jesus' point is that what makes two people neighbors is not that they share so much in common, that they have so much affinity for the same things or for each other, or that they literally live in the same neighborhood. No, what makes them neighbors is the simple fact that one has a need and the other has the means and the opportunity to meet that need. So by implication, it means anyone can be your neighbor. Your neighbor is anyone in need. There is no such thing as a non-neighbor. That category simply does not exist. So that means there are no justifiable limits to our biblical duty to love any person in need, anyone that God places along our path. So again, let's make that connection to the issue of abortion. 
We suggested earlier that the reason why so many can turn a blind eye to the plight of the unborn is because we've categorized them as non-neighbors, as non-persons. And the reason it's easy for us to limit our duty to love and to protect them is because from one perspective, we share very little in common with the inhabitant in the womb. They don't look like us. For much of their gestational life, they look like a clump of cells. To the untrained eye, a human fetus is indistinguishable from the fetus of, of, of a variety of animals. They, these, these fetuses can't communicate. They're not self-conscious or, or, or rational beings. And they're largely out of sight, hidden within the womb. And so, because they seem so different from human persons like us, it's easy to categorize the unborn as non-persons and limit any duty to love and protect them as a neighbor. But then, the parable of the Good Samaritan reminds us that there's no such thing as a non-neighbor. Every single person created in the image of God is our neighbor. We can't write off anyone. We can't be like the priest or the Levite and excuse our negligence toward a neighbor in need. We can't just pass on by without being inconvenienced by the plight of the unborn. The inhabitant of the womb is our neighbor and is deserving of our neighborly love and protection. We must not allow their developmental size to bias us. Every human fetus is what all human persons look like at that particular gestational age. I mean, just think about it. We all look like that at one point in time. We were all that small. We were all that undeveloped. Who are we to claim that you must look like us in order to deserve our love? Or that you must be as capable or as conscious as us. Or or that you must be as intelligent or rational as us before we deem you worthy of protection. If we were to apply that standard to adults, we would easily recognize that as, as either racial discrimination or discrimination against the physically or mentally disabled. We would be appalled by any form of genocide for such reasons as that. I mean, and that's why when when Nazi Germany tried to eliminate whole populations of ethnic Jews along with the physically and mentally disabled peoples, we easily recognized, the world recognized the moral evil in their actions and rightly condemned it. So why? Would any sane society condone a similar form of genocide of persons within the womb for similar reasons? According to the figures from the Guttmacher Institute, since 1973, there have been nearly 63 million aborted children in our nation alone. 63 million Those are genocidal figures, and yet somehow it's justified because the unborn don't look like us, and they're not as capable or as rational as us. Do you see, friends, 
how that argument completely falls apart once you locate that person outside the womb. If you're speaking of a baby or a young child or an adult, we would never allow for that kind of argumentation. Why then would a change of location from inside a womb to outside, why would that suddenly bestow human personhood and dignity? Why would six inches, the average length of a birth canal, why would that make such a difference in determining whether we're dealing with fetal tissue that can be discarded through an abortion or a human person, a neighbor worthy of our love and protection? I think we intuitively know the answer. As as expecting parents, we instinctively give nicknames to our children while they're still in the womb. While they're in the womb, we we sing to them. We we read stories to to them. We, We play Mozart for them. We stick ultrasound pictures on our fridge, and we tell our older children that that's your, that's your baby brother, that's your baby sister in mommy's belly. Our instinct is to treat the unborn as a living human person, regardless of their location in respect to the womb. Only when babies are unwanted do we begin to dehumanize them and begin to treat them as non-persons, and non-neighbors. Somehow, as a society, we've come to accept the deadly insanity of that irrational argument. But, you know, beyond the rational reasons for why the inhabitants of the womb are human persons deserving of human rights, we, friends, as Christians, we have biblical and theological reasons for why we should recognize life as beginning from the very moment of conception. The biblical evidence strongly supports the case that from the moment of fertilization, the human embryo is a unique living person in the eyes of God. I could point to Psalm 139, verse 13, where David extols God for forming his inward parts, for knitting him together, while he was in his mother's womb. Or we could think of Luke chapter 1, verse 41, where John the Baptist's prophetic ministry began while he was still a baby in his mother's womb, when he leaped for joy at the sound of Mary's voice, when he heard the voice of the mother of his Lord, the one to whom he was called to give a testimony. So there are plenty of biblical passages that we could point to. You know, I think still the best argument for the personhood of the unborn is a Christ-centered theological argument. You see, earlier in Luke's gospel, Mary is told by an angel that, quote, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Mary asks, how can this be so since she's a virgin And she's told, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And this, my friends, is why the Apostles' Creed says that the incarnate Son was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So if you believe that, 
if you affirm Luke's gospel, and if you affirm the Apostles' Creed, then you can't escape its testimony that life begins at conception, when the Spirit enabled the Virgin to miraculously conceive an embryo in her womb. At that very moment, God the Son became a human person. The miracle of the incarnation occurred at conception. Not, not sometime later on in, 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 the, in the third trimester or, or, or whenever the, the, the fetus is considered quote-unquote viable. Think about it. Think about the implications. If the incarnate Son of God was once a tiny little embryo, then that particular embryo we know is, was more than just a clump of cells. That little embryo was a person, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, if Jesus' mission was to fully share in our humanity, and if his embryo possessed personhood, then by implication, all human embryos possess personhood. And that's why, my friends, I believe that in Orthodox Christology, that is a sound theology of the person and nature of Christ, will lead to the conviction that the unborn are human persons. They are neighbors worthy of our love and protection. So with this parable, the Good Samaritan, we see Jesus is confronting any effort to justify our biases and undercutting any attempt to limit our duty to love. But thirdly, thirdly, friends, he demonstrates what enables true neighborly love. Within the parable itself, we see the secret for how to truly love everyone as a neighbor. And by everyone, I don't just mean the unborn. It also is our duty to love the women who have had an abortion or have considered an abortion. I know we've spent all of our time so far focused on the unborn child, and I think rightly so, because the baby is glaringly overlooked in contemporary discussions and debates on the issue of abortion. But I was reminded by a book that I've been reading called Help Her Be Brave. It's about the duty that we have as Christians to also love the mother who is going through a very scary and lonely experience in a crisis pregnancy. She is as much our neighbor as the child within her. And so I know we, we, we could easily stigmatize her uh, um, we could, you know, if she contemplates an abortion or if she actually goes through with one. We could make her feel as hopeless as that dying man on the Jericho Road. Or, like the Good Samaritan, we could show her mercy and love. We could be a neighbor to her. If you look back at verse 36, Jesus turned and he asked the lawyer after he finished with the parable, and he asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So for Jesus, the focus of this parable is not on 
whom we should love and serve, but simply that we love and serve. Who is my neighbor is actually the wrong question. The better question is, am I being a neighbor? Am I being a neighbor who shows mercy to anyone who's in need of it? Am I showing love to my neighbor, to to the tiny, helpless neighbor growing in the womb, and at the same time to, to the scared, confused woman who just found out she's pregnant? So how does this happen? Where does this neighborly love come from? What enables this kind of love within us? Well, just think about how Jesus intentionally makes the Jewish man the victim in this story and the Samaritan the Savior. It's as if he wants all Israelites who are listening to this parable to imagine themselves lying there on the side of that road, to imagine everyone that you would expect to stop and help you, just picture them passing right on by. But then, of all people, The only one to actually stop and help is a Samaritan. What if your only hope comes from the one person who should be an enemy towards you, who should have not shown you mercy, but wrath? But what if instead you do experience mercy at his hands? What is that going to do to you? It's going to transform you. It's going to change you into an entirely different new person. Once you've experienced that kind of mercy, it is going to change the way that you look at other people and and the way you treat other people. If someone who should have ignored you, someone who should have passed you by, someone who should have treated you as a non-neighbor, if instead that someone treats you with, with great mercy, There's no way you can continue to live your life ignoring others and treating them as non-neighbors. Bottom line, if you want to be a good Samaritan, if you want to be a good neighbor, then you'll need to experience the love of one first. That's why, friends, we need to read this parable about a man on the Jericho Road within the larger context of the gospel of Jesus on the Calvary road. That gospel tells us that we are actually the ones lying on the side of the road. We would be dead if left to ourselves. But Jesus, the great Samaritan, he saw us and he had mercy on us. He, he had every right to ignore us and to pass us by, and yet he saved us in that great cost to himself. Friends, when you realize that you have been loved like that, that's when you are able to love anyone along your path, anyone that you find in need. That's what happens when you've experienced the love of Christ in the gospel. And it's that love of Christ that I want to proclaim over any of you who have been associated with an abortion in the past. I realize that this message may have unearthed certain emotions that you have been trying to bury away. You've been carrying around a, a heavy burden of guilt and shame because of abortion. 
But the good news of the gospel is that you can give that burden over to Christ. He'll carry it for you, and he'll carry it onto the cross. The great Samaritan won't pass you by. He won't neglect you. He won't condemn you. Instead, he'll show you mercy and love. I hope you hear that, and I hope you receive that good news for yourself. Now, church, let me just conclude by taking the neighborly love that God enables within us through the gospel, and let me help direct it towards a practical act of love and service. One practical way to love and serve both the unborn and women in a crisis pregnancy is to volunteer at a pregnancy center. Let me recommend two for you. Uh, these are two that, that um, I, I think are doing really good work in our city. The first is Houston Pregnancy Help Center, and it's located in Midtown, directly across from the Houston Community College Central Campus. Um, and so very nearby, and they've been established there for, for many years doing good ministry. The second uh, um, pregnancy center I want to recommend is called The Source. And they are actually opening up a brand new office in the medical plaza that is located um, just directly next to our church building, right north of our, of our campus is a small medical plaza. And at the end of this month, they, they're opening up a new office. And one of our members, Lynn Tan, works at um, the source at the Spring Branch office. And she would love to, to talk to any of you who has uh, interest and questions on how uh, to, to volunteer and to serve at the source and even uh, for job opportunities uh, for those with a medical background. And so I, I really look forward to our church getting more connected with the source, especially since they are literally our neighbors. Friends, the, the women who come into these centers you have to understand they are filled with fear, shame, and confusion. And so by listening, loving, and speaking truth, you are loving both mother and unborn child. And I, I know there are ways for not just women, but also men to get involved, to volunteer. Now, some are more hands-on where you, you are actually working with clients. You are doing some, 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 um, uh, some mentoring or, or, or parenting uh, uh, classes. Uh, but other ways are just simply labor-intensive. You're helping clean up uh, things um, and, 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 uh, and just kind of a, a building, you know, furniture and things like that. And so, you know, even just financially supporting these ministries will also be a significant act of neighborly love. And so I do encourage, in light of today's message, for families and community groups to prayerfully consider together how is the Lord leading you to love and to serve both the unborn and mothers in a crisis pregnancy. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you again for this passage, for this message on a, a difficult topic, but it's so important for us to not be silent, but to speak your truth with love and grace. And so I, I just pray, Lord, that you will do a work in us, wh whatever we need right now, 
whether it's conviction or comfort, whether it's consolation or to be challenged, would you do that within us? And together as a church, may we be able to serve those who are in in great need, who are in great despair, whether the unborn or mothers who are confused as to what to do next. Help us to be able to step in, Lord. Show us the way that we can be involved. We pray this in your son's name.